people mainly know Tracy Flick through the movie version of Election. You know, Reese Witherspoon played this role and she did it with such panache. You know, she made herself into a star with that. Everybody kind of knows her through it. So in a sense, this new book is in conversation, not just with the novel Election, which I published over 20 years ago, but with this movie that has also been part of the you know, public consciousness for all that time. Yeah, Tracy Enid Flick, right? (laughs) Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. We have the huge honor today of talking with acclaimed novelist Tom Parada about his newest work, Tracy Flick Can't Win. It's a wonderfully satiric and hysterical exploration of how life unfolded for one of literature's most enduring and iconic characters, Tracy Flick. People Magazine has heralded Tom as a truth-telling, unshowy chronicler of modern-day America, and that is so perfectly said. Every one of his books is spot on. I am Ron Block. And I'm Meg Walker, the Managing Director of Friends in Fiction. Tom Parada is the best-selling author of 10 works of fiction. He's likely best known for his novels Election and Little Children, both of which were made into Oscar-nominated films, and The Leftovers and Mrs. Fletcher, which were both adapted into series for HBO. His other books include Bad Haircut, The Wishbones, Joe College, The Abstinence Teacher, and Nine Inches. He's here today to talk with us about Tracy Flick Can't Win a sequel to Election, two decades plus in the making. His work has been translated into a multitude of languages. Born and raised in New Jersey, Parada lives outside of Boston. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. It's so wonderful to have you with us. Well, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. This is is wonderful. I've been looking forward to this a lot. I love this book so much. I couldn't stop texting Meg. (laughs) Like, did you get to this part yet? Did you get to that part yet? (laughs) Anyway. Publishers Weekly said, as ever, Parada writes incisively from several different points of view, illuminating the frustrated inner lives of his characters. Dominating it all is Tracy, whom the reader comes to understand better even through her cringeworthy machinations. This is the rare sequel that lives up to the original. Tom, let's start at the beginning. What was the driving force to bring Tracy back to readers? Well, I think that I actually didn't necessarily know that that's what I was doing when I started this book. I started the book wanting to write about another character, the Vito Falcone, who is a former pro football player who is brought back to his alma mater high school to be the first person inducted into their Hall of Fame. And and Vito is suffering from, you know, probably what is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the post-concussion syndrome that you hear about a lot. You can't really diagnose it when someone's alive, but he's starting to sense that he's having symptoms that are consistent with that. And I thought, what an interesting image of like American masculinity 
in this particular moment. You know, he's like the former golden boy and now he's damaged and he's in recovery, but he's still being honored by his old high school. And when I started to write the book about Vito, I found that I was writing it as if it were election in these little chapters from different points of view. And I was puzzled by why I was doing that. I didn't think it was a great idea because election had such a distinctive structure, but the structure seemed to just insist on itself. And at some point I just looked up and, you know, had that little light bulb moment. Is Tracy here? <laughs> it, sounds, it seems like <laughs> Tracy's here. And I really feel like in some way, you know, when you're writing, the best stuff happens under your own radar, that a book is kind of revealing itself to you in these subconscious ways. And really what I thought later was that Vito kind of brought Tracy along because Tracy in election, you know, her nemesis is this very popular football player. And, you know, I think that in a sense, that is the systemic issue that Tracy's dealing with. You know, she that's how patriarchy reveals itself in high school, right? The football player (laughs) is the hero and Tracy, who is extremely smart, extremely hardworking, extremely competent, um, has everything but this perception that she is a leader among, you know, among her peers. And, And I think even now she's sort of, she's a hardworking assistant principal, but she's not going to get in the hall of fame. It's this former football player who has left a wake of, uh, you know, wreckage in, in his path. To put it mildly. <laughs> I, I mean, I love that you felt like she, you were writing something else and you felt like she was there with you because. And, and you gave into it. So a lot of people would say, no, I'm going to write the story I started out with and then we'll see, but you just kind of gave into it. And it was great. Well, I think I think that is the mystery of writing fiction. Like, I mean, it, it's sort of interesting to me after all these years that Tracy Flick is the character I'm, I'm most known for because I feel like I backed into Tracy as well. I was writing a book about Mr. M, the teacher who destroys himself. And I had to figure out a story of like, like, why does he do this? Why does he try to fix a student election? And the answer to that question was he's resentful of Tracy Flick, this really ambitious girl in his uh, class who he feels threatened by. It looks like she's going to, she's bound for a very successful life. And he's feeling like in some way um, that he hasn't lived up to his own potential. And there's a kind of resentment that leads him uh, to be angry with Tracy and to do something that he never dreamed he was capable of. And so I, I, it's one thing I've learned o- over the years of writing is to really listen when the book starts to reveal itself to me. Even And I tried the, for that reason not to have a really rigid plan. You know, I really think there is some improvisational aspect to writing fiction and a kind of, um, you, need, you just need to be open uh, and listen to the book. And And I feel like in both cases, Tracy has sort of, um, revealed herself to me in that way, like kind of under the radar of my planning mind. I love that. I mean, I, selfishly, I love it as as a reader and for the general, like wider reading public that we get to be with her again. I, I'm curious because you're with a different house now than you were when you published Election. Did you get any pushback from your publishing team um, when you said you wanted to revisit a character that wasn't in their backlist? No. <laughs> No, you know that that it's it's uh, I, I give 
such credit to my editor, uh, Kathy Belden, and to Nan Graham, the publisher at Scrivener. They were just very en- enthused about about the idea. And, um, you know, I think, you know, 20 years later, <laughs> it just uh, was, it was just one of those things. It was just the, the story I was writing. And, um, you know, I think, I also think, to be honest, that, people mainly know Tracy Flick through the movie version of election, you know, Reese Witherspoon played this role and she did it with such panache. You know, she made herself into a star with that. Everybody kind of knows her through it. So in a sense, this new book is in conversation, not just with the novel election, which I published over 20 years ago, but with this movie that has also been part of the, you know, public consciousness for all that time. Yeah. Tracy Enid Flick, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was actually on set the day that she really? did that. It was so funny. Yeah. Um, well, she she has become such an archetype in our society. And uh, you and I were talking about this before we started recording, but because the publishing world is so minuscule, I actually worked in the marketing department at Putnam when election was published. And we all walked around the office wearing our Vote Tracy buttons. Um, so were you surprised really about how the public latched onto her and, and, and how do you think that relationship um, has evolved from when election first came out to to now with um, Tracy Flick can't win? Yeah, it, it's actually been quite a quite a journey for a character. I mean, first of all, I had a hard time publishing election, so I, I and I was told by early readers that it kind of fell between between the cracks of a literary novel and, and a young adult novel, um, even though it had a lot of sex and <laughs> politics <laughs> in it, you know. Um, but I think people were, were puzzled by it. On the other hand, Hollywood was really open to it because they were making a lot of teen movies and somewhat dark teen movies in the, in the late 90s. So the book had a much easier time over there. But but it wasn't a um, it wasn't a hit movie, you know. It it got very good reviews, and I think the people who liked it really liked it. Um, uh, Reese didn't get nominated for an Oscar, which I now which now people think is a real oversight. Um, but the character kind of stuck because I the reason I think it stuck was because it was chronicling this new generation of ambitious girls who were born you know, in in the 1970s, post Roe versus Wade, who were told by their mothers, especially, that you can do anything you want, and they believed them. And what I also realized in retrospect was that there were, because American women were so barred from public life and from public office for so long, there wasn't a lot of fictional portrayals of women politicians. Like, if you try and think about it, I, you know, I just can't think of a novel about a woman politician or a movie about a woman politician before election. There may, there may have been a few, um, but I, I can't remember them. And so I think Tracy was just this new Im- image of a really ambitious um, young woman who, in a sense, was going after success like like a man would, you know, and and men didn't know what to make of that. They were threatened by it. They were bothered by it. And somehow Tracy stuck as a kind of archetype or shorthand for this like unpleasantly ambitious woman. And to the point where like when the movie came out, 
she was described as a villain by a lot of people. And she would appear on these lists of movie villains. And the really interesting thing to me was that about maybe 10 years ago, some critics started to say, hey, wait a second. This girl is not a villain. She's a high school girl who is trying to be, get elected president of her class because she lives with a single mom and needs a college scholarship. She's trying to beef up her resume. And yeah, you know, she she does a few morally questionable things, but, you know, she's also, um, you know, been kind of, um, you know, she's had a sexual relationship with a teacher who took advantage of her. You know, it, it, she's not a villain is, is, you know, what people started to say. And in fact, she is a victim and, and the image of Tracy got completely overturned in an interesting way. And um, I think that made me really um, interested as a writer, like, oh, wow, I created a character who um, has just been understood in very different ways, depending upon the historical context that's that's looking at her. And it also made me a little um, thoughtful about, you know, OK, I portrayed Tracy as having this sexual relationship with her teacher and she was very adamant that it was her choice, even though she was young. She was 15 years old um, and that she had no regrets and that she wasn't a victim. And post Me Too, you know, I started seeing stories about abusive teachers where, um, you know, women who'd had these relationships with teachers, some of them were saying, you know, um, at the time, I thought that I was doing what I wanted. But looking back on it now, as an adult, I see how I was, you know, groomed or, or manipulated. And I understand now that I was too young and that that relationship left, um, you know, a mark on me that I regret. You know, and I was interested in thinking about how Tracy would look back on that part of her life now that she's a mother and she's an assistant principal in a high school. So that I think became like the central question for me, you know, writing this book in a very different era. Yes, yes, yes. And speaking of a different era, not only Tracy having um, changed, but the world itself and the world at large really changed a lot in between the two books. Can you talk about your process of kind of updating all of those surrounding ideas and themes? Yeah, well, you know, I think that election kind of gave me a template because even at that time, I said to myself, I'm I'm writing a book about a very trivial event, an election for president in one small suburban high school. It really doesn't matter to the world who gets elected president of Winwood High School. Um, but I also understood that I was using this high school as a kind of microcosm for American culture and the American political system. So it was a kind of a political allegory. And so I had that kind of... Um, model in mind when I started Tracy Flip Can't Win. And it was just, it's just so interesting how much can be contained um, by a high school and all the parallels between um, the issues that crop up in the high school setting and the issues that are cropping up in the wider world. So, you know, you have Vito who is suffering from post-concussion syndrome, who's a representative of a kind of toxic masculinity that used to be, I think, taken for granted in this society, uh, see Donald Trump as, you know, uh, example number one. Um, 
and and now is under like a kind of sustained criticism from uh you know for, from women who felt oppressed by um these kind of men for a long time and even from other men who also felt bullied and oppressed by uh these men i think um you have tracy who is a very talented competent um smart person who keeps bumping up against the glass ceiling why can't tracy become uh, the principal of a high school, even she thought she was going to be president of the United right. States. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so you're, you know, it was a way of talking about issues of, of gender. Um, the book is also about, um, fame and ambition. Um, you know, there's a, there's a student who is, um, you know, the, the book really is, is exploring this issue of like, who do we honor? And why and what does that reveal about what we value as, as a culture, I think. And that became, um, you know, and that the, tra- the story of Tracy Flick is the story of uh, a woman who's ambitious and trying to succeed and, and keeps finding that the playing field is is tilted against her in some way. I love it. And you, you did it also brilliantly, all these different voices. I mean, um, and the different themes and it all comes through on the page so beautifully. Um but Tracy and Jack take center stage, but but we'd love to ask a bit about all the other voices in the book. So you've created like a true ensemble with with Vito and Kyle and front desk Diane and Lily, Nate, and the list goes on. Um, and they're each so, they're so varied and they're each so fully realized in their own way. So um, what what influenced th- these characters and and you know what were you hoping each perspective might add to the story? Yeah, you know, that that's part of the microcosm idea, you know. So, yeah, I, I in my list of uh, issues, you know, Kyle Dumont, uh, Kyle Dorfman um, is this guy. Uh, he's made, he's an alum of the same high school where Tracy is now the principal. He made a, a fortune in the tech industry because of a stupid virtual pet app that he came up with. And he's uh, taken his money and come back home to his town. And, and he's sort of saying it's because he really liked the town and he wants his kids to grow up the way he did. But actually he's built this like monstrous mansion back on the street where his family had a little house. It's really, he's like lording his wealth over the people he grew up with, but he's, you know, deceiving himself. <laughs> and he, but he's the one who decides to finance this hall of fame. And, um, because he's now also the president of the school board, Tracy feels like she has to kind of, um, you know, do his bidding because she needs him as a political ally. And and so, you know, Kyle is a kind of representative of, you know, our more recent American world where, you know, that's just so, it's just so rife with inequality where, where so many, you know, where a small handful of people really have so much more money than than other people because you know at least you know tracy came from this sort of working class suburb where you know there were some class differences but it wasn't like it is now you know our our society right now is way more unequal than it was 20 or 25 years ago yeah i mean poor poor tracy she's got Vito on the one side and kyle on the other who are like just like shoving it in her face how she can't achieve her goals and the two of them have just sort of like um fallen into this success a little bit, you know? 
Yeah, there are two versions of of oppressive males. You know, one is one is the earlier alpha male version. You know, that's an athlete and and uh, a playboy. You know, and and Kyle is much more the, uh, you know, the nerd with a huge pot of money. Right, and she's the tortured soul in the middle of it all. <laughs> that's right. So it's like the push me pull you yeah. thing. It's like oh, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. <laughs> Right. And Jack Weed, as you, who you mentioned before, is the principal yes. who's retiring. And he's a sort of Tracy likes Jack and he's probably a pretty good principal. But he also is a sort of um, this this older rogue who uh, has somehow stayed ahead of uh, <laughs> all, all of his Me Too violations. And he's retiring, you know, with his reputation intact, even though he has not behaved in a especially uh, ethical way over the years. So he's, he's the voice of the, uh, you know, the guy who is uh, sort of saying, <laughs> let's just forget about the past. It's just a room full of toxic masculinity. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> that's called America. <laughs> it's exactly. And it's sad, but that's what, that's the way it is for now. So um, without giving any spoilers, did you always know the ending was going to be what it turned out to be? No. And, and this relates to what I was saying earlier. You know, I, I try uh, to move forward without a real plan. Um, you know, I knew that I had set up a situation where this Hall of Fame induction ceremony was going to bring all the characters in the book together. And um you know, I think that's a, a structure that sort of demands some kind of, you know, big event when you get all your characters in, in one place. But I didn't know what that would be. And, and at a certain late moment, you know, the idea occurred to me. And, and I, uh, again, I know, I appreciate your no spoilers. I, I, I just, often with an idea that is, uh, disturbing or, or surprising, you know, I resisted at first, but, but then if it just overcomes my own objections, I feel like, okay, that may be the the way that, that I have to go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, that to me is a really interesting moment, you know, when you have set up a story and you're starting to move toward, toward the end game. And you're not quite sure where you're going. And then the answer, you know, appears and, and there's a kind of excitement in that moment and a kind of dread and, and often a kind of, uh, you know, I get, you know, I scare myself (laughs) a little sometimes. (laughs) And that's, that's to me is the mark of, of an interesting ending. And, and, uh, you know, I, I definitely, I don't just embrace it. You know, there's a, there's definitely a period of, resistance and questioning but if it if it survives that period um then you know then you're on the home stretch it was a bold ending like i i I honestly didn't see it coming um i didn't either i didn't either but when when i read it i was like okay i got it i I got it nothing's more of the moment than what you did with the ending yeah sad to say well, so your work delves beneath the surface of American suburbia in this brilliant way. I mean, you, you shatter the well-manicured myths <laughs> and expose a bit of the dark underbelly of uh, what everyone's trying to, to make out as the perfect 
life in suburbia here. Um, so can you talk about why, why you think this appeals to you as a writer? Yeah, this is something that I've actually, you know, struggled with over the years only because I, I never thought of myself as a specifically suburban writer. And, and when I first started to be um, characterized in that way, I was, I was surprised. And, and I think that in the end, suburbia is just where I've lived and, and it's where, you know, my imagination lives. Um, but, you know, I, I would always say, well, I'm writing about people and these people just happen to be in, in suburbia. And so I'm, it's almost, I think I'm, I'm talking about what is going on with my characters rather than what is going on in suburbia, if you, if you understand the distinction. And so, mm -hmm. so the idea that there's a dark underbelly to me, isn't a dark underbelly in suburbia. It's a dark underbelly in the human beings who happen to live in, in suburbia. And I think, you know, I don't think there's like that, that I think urban characters have a similar dark underbelly and rural characters probably have a similar dark underbelly. It just so happens that, my characters live in the place where I have lived and, and um, they struggle with their emotions and their desires and, um, you know, their ambitions, what, you know, their conflicts with other people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's really what, what I'm um, trying to write about. I think it's funny. I, I, I guess because I've lived in some of the very same places that you've lived in as we've talked about, but um so to me, it just, I guess that's my take on it too, is, um, because that's where I live. You, you do such a brilliant job of bringing these places to life that you, you, I literally feel like I'm walking in the towns that you've created. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I feel like I am very much uh, a realist, you know, very deep down. Uh, you know, I did write The Leftovers, which is my one sort of speculative or, or dystopian uh, but but it is I, you know it's the exception that that proves the rule. Generally, I speaking, I'm you know trying to write realism. I'm trying to engage with um, you know moments in recent history and and the issues that have um, you know flared up and and you know it's a it's a it's it can be a a challenging thing to write about what's what's happening in the moment. Like I found this with, with Mrs. Fletcher in particular, and I wrote that book. I started it maybe 2013, 2014. And I was writing about like all this stuff that I thought was like bubbling underground about sex and, and gender. Um, and, you know, pornography was at the heart of that. And by the time the show, the, the show came out, so the book came out and I think, um, that was one thing. But then a couple of years later, the TV show came out and all that stuff that was under the surface had just blown mm. up. You know, the mm -hmm. Me Too movement had happened. And I think that the cultural uh, sense of, of, you know, how, how we thought about women's sexuality and male sexuality and pornography is just a much darker um, sense of what was going on. And I think, um, the idea of a sort of comic novel with a, a woman at the heart of it who was interested in pornography um, just didn't seem quite as, as funny 
as it had even just a few years earlier. You know, I think, I think, you know, I was grappling with the sexual revolution, but I think, you know, I was grappling with it, feeling like we're in the middle of it and things are changing. And then suddenly like five or six years later, it felt like, you know, there was just this, this almost revisionist thinking about the sexual revolution that had really kind of solidified and, and, um, you know, it, it is, you know, or, or I look at a book like The Abstinence Teacher, where I was writing about the culture war and sex education. And and on one side, you had a kind of, you know, evangelical Christian culture warrior and the other side, a liberal sex education teacher. And the, and the book really reflected um, a sense that I had back in those days that like, well, Americans on both sides of the divide maybe have more in common than they realize. And if they could only get to know each other, they might be able to find some common ground. But now when I think about it, like in the age of Trump, I just don't feel that way anymore. I feel like there's this divide between us that is almost impossible to um, to cross. And, and so it is, I, I feel like these books are snapshots of, you know, particular historical moments. And, and it is, it's been amazing to me as a novelist and a, a an American citizen, you know, to just, reflect on the changes that we've seen over the the past 25 years. I do think it's been like a truly like revolutionary era in terms of, of, um, you know, technology redefinitions of uh, sexuality and gender and, and um, you know, the uh, kind of explosion of economic inequality. Like it, it truly has been a kind of dizzying era, you know, and it's, it's been, a really interesting thing as a novelist to try and, you know, keep up with it and, and try and understand what it feels like to live inside these moments. I, that's beautifully said. I, it's just spot on, spot on. But um, one of the things that struck me too about the book, going back just a little bit to one of the minor characters and what you were just saying, it um, creating the character of Lily really gave you a lot of room to, bring out diverse ideas in the story because she observes race and gender differences and she's got her own life. But that really says a lot about the world uh, at large. Why do you think it's important to highlight those themes now? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, so I was writing Tracy Flip Can't Win during the height of, you know, Black Lives Matter movement. And I think, you know, my kids went to college at a time when um, issues of identity and diversity and inclusion became like really, you know, much more central to the American political debate than they had been during other other periods of my life. And, and you know, as a writer who delved a lot into suburbia, I, I think I've written books very much from a kind of, I'm a white person writing about white characters. And I think suburbia is you know, really gotten more diverse over time. And Lily Chu is a, a young uh, Chinese-American woman who is discovering that she's queer. And she's interesting because she's kind of a updated version of Tracy. And Tracy right. sees herself a little bit yes. in, in Lily. Um, but Lily has a kind of perspective that Tracy didn't have because she's looking at the world, you know, through the lens of of race and, and uh you know, a sexual orientation in a way that Tracy uh, never was. And in fact, during the debate about the Hall of Fame, you know, Lily is pushing um, for the inclusion of a, a black football player who was one of Vito's teammates. And he uh, 
never had the chance to succeed the way Vito had because he'd had a run in with a local cop and, and, you know, um, his football career got derailed because of, of racism. And Lily is, is, you know, really passionate about getting this guy to be considered. And Tracy just looks and says, Oh, another yeah, football. That's a bridge guy. too far. For Tracy. You know? <laughs> yeah. She, for Tracy, it just, she's not accustomed to, to that, those lenses, you know, and that, that I think is another part of this book is just, um, you know, the lenses through which we look at our times, you know, really determine what we see and the lens um, that we used in the 1990s and the lens that we use now are just are entirely different. And we see different things, you know, and even Tracy is looking at her life. um, You know, it's the lens of this particular moment, but it's also the lens of middle age looking back, you know, when she's young, she feels powerful and, and she doesn't feel like a victim. And when she's older and she's a little bit disappointed and feels stuck, she's able to kind of tell a different story about her past or detect patterns that that um you know she might not have been able to notice at any other point in her life yeah that's interesting how you did that because i mean in the beginning of the novel you definitely see how tracy's um she's come a little bit of a long way away from her super rigid perfectionism and her views of like competition and and all that um but you also um, you, you you delve into the book and how like past hurts and past traumas can affect us in our adulthood. Um, and so can you, you talk about weaving that into the story and, and the reasons behind it? Yeah, well, um, I think that for Tracy, you know, she she's always felt like she was an exceptional person. And, and I think that, um, you know, we live in such an individualistic culture you know that it basically and and if you grew up in the 80s and 90s i think there was just that feeling of like you know you're it's up to you what you do with your life and you know it's a meritocracy and you can rise to the top and and um you know i think americans started to lose this sense of community and um you know but tracy always felt like she was a party of one and her life was under her own control. And yet her life has not turned out quite the way that she wanted, despite her talents and ambitions. And I think she's starting to see that, you know, A, she is a woman, and a lot of things that happened to women, um, you know, have determined some of the limits on her life. And, and um, you know... Uh, I just she she just says it like maybe I wasn't as special as I thought I was. She thought she was a special case, and now she's seeing herself as you know a, a member of of humanity and 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 a woman among women. Yeah, even if she was special, she um, like life ain't fair. And I think that's the kind of she's coming yeah. around to too. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I think that has always been the issue with meritocracy and individualism. It's sort of easy for the people on top to say that, you know, I won fair and square. But um, Tracy, one of the things she's realizing is, you know, there's no fair and square for me. And that's partly in the title, you know, Tracy Flick can't win. You know, yes, she's having a tough year or a bad day, but it's much deeper than that. It's like, 
oh, wow, maybe it's impossible for the Tracys of, of the world to win. I mean, you know, it's also a little bit um, colored by the experience of, of Hillary Clinton, you know, that sense of like, literally, she could not win. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually some some women will win, I'm sure. But right now, I, it, it's hard um, to know when that will be and, and to not connect it to um, this deeply rooted cultural sense that women you know, aren't natural leaders, you know, and, and a lot of times that's even shared by women themselves, you know, sadly enough. But, um, you know, talk about uh, trauma too. I think, I think trauma doesn't always reveal itself right away. I think it's possible for somebody like Tracy, um, you know, she had this relationship in high school and um, it didn't last long and it just seemed like a blip to her um, at the time, but later on, she's understanding, like, it was almost like the key to my whole high school experience, you know, that particular, you know, two-month relationship, because, you know, Mr. M's decision to, um, you know, try and steal the election from her was related to his loyalty to his friend who got fired because he had this affair with Tracy. It was like, um, it, it colored the way people looked at her in school and, and maybe who would vote for her. You know, um, I mean, she's very talking very specifically about that particular trauma, but there's also the trauma of, you know, her mother's illness and her having to set aside her dreams to be a caretaker. You know, it, it just, I do think that we don't really understand sometimes the central events in our lives until long after that. Yeah, I mean, and Vito's a great example of that, too. I mean, he, he's literally trying to, to make amends for some of the past things he's done in his life. And and his past continues to haunt him in, in a multitude of ways. I mean, the injuries is just one part of it. Um, but, like, he's trying to make right on some of this stuff and, and without giving anything away. Like, it doesn't really go so well for him. I mean, it seems like it's going well for him. He's ma- he's He's making amends with some folks, and he's he's coming around to realizing, you know, uh, how he's created this path for himself. Yeah. And no, I, I, I know. I, I mean, I find Vito kind of moving in, in, in this book, you know, I, I mean, cause it, this is another part of our culture right now, which is, I think rightly we're holding people accountable in a way that we haven't before. Um, but I also think, you know, there should be room for people to, you know, do an accounting and make amends and somehow, you know, get back into the community in some sense. And, and you know, Vito is in that process. And I think there are ways in which you can see he's just become a better yeah, person. Yeah, he's doing the work. Um, he's doing the work. And, and the, baby the, stepping, he's doing the work. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of moving and it, it allows him to be, I think, generous to like this woman page that he meets in recovery, who is also a person, you know, who's dealing with deep shame. And and Vito is sort of like, he knows what it's like to feel deeply ashamed and to know that you've screwed up in a way that, you know, you can't undo. Yeah, he's he's finally able to show people some kindness, whereas the the younger version of Vito wouldn't have even been aware of, of any of that. 
No, no, he just had that kind of world is mine. I'm going to take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but uh, yes, I, I think uh, you know, as different as he and Tracy would have been in high school, as middle-aged people, I think they're both just grappling with disappointment. For Vito, it's a sense of I had something great and I lost it, and for Tracy, it's I never got what I deserved. But those are two forms of, I think middle-aged sadness that that um you know bring them together in one weird moment there's a moment when you know they're on stage and they're looking at each other and and con tracy is like seeing him you know somebody who i think she you know reflexively kind of despises but she's actually seeing him in in that moment and and i i you know that does seem like something that is a kind of wisdom that comes with age and comes with um, sometimes with with feeling wounded or, or um, you know, being hurt, that, that I do think it creates maybe a, a, a kind of compassion that, that might be harder to attain as a younger person who's just on a mission to succeed. Wow. <clears throat> I, I, as we're talking, I'm like, this is like one of the biggest themes in the book. And it's one of the things that I think people are going to uh, if they haven't already, most relate to because I think we all, whether we were the victims of it or the or the cause of some of this stuff, um, I think we can reflect and and think think about it, and it really stays with us. But that leads me into this question a little bit. Um, now that um, the book is out and uh, a lot of your books have been made into successful large and small screen things, has there been anybody, maybe somebody named Reese, come calling about this? <laughs> Well, so all I can say is that there are conversations happening oh. and my fingers are crossed that something will will emerge. It's, it's uh, you know, it's that mysterious land of Hollywood. So uh, <laughs> I, I I just have my fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, but I think it would be like a golden opportunity. And Reese, if you're yes. listening to be able to revive this character, there's so many nuances and changes that have happened. And what a great way to you know take a bite out of your acting chops and really dig into it and win another oscar well it feels it feels to me like a what a rare opportunity you know to play a character you know when you're young to play that character in high school and then play the same character you know as a, a woman in her in her 40s you know it just right. is it, it it rarely happens right because you have to have had the early <laughs> version right. so i mean i guess tom cruise just did the same thing, but Tom Cruise is always Tom Cruise, so right, he doesn't right. have to he, say like, "How has this character changed?" It's more like it's thirty years later, and I'm still Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a character that changed a lot. a lot, and she's so she's perfect. She was perfect for it then, and she's perfect for it now. Yeah, and she's changed a lot, and yet certain core um, attributes are still there. So I think that's the fun part of it. Is like, mm -hmm. how has she changed, and how has she stayed the same? Well, Tom. As the saying goes, um, the easier it was to read, the harder it was to write. And to me, um, your books are so eminently readable. Um, the chapters are short, the language is plain, and, and, and your writing is completely unpretentious. So to, uh, the pages just fly by. And, you know, on the surface, these stories, they feel fairly simple. And yet, as we've been talking about, you know, um, you, you delve fairly deep into before you know it you've had all this fun reading the book and so to me I, I feel like you're really and truly like some type of wizard because 
Um, it must have been very hard to write if it was this easy to read, I guess is what I'm saying. Because, um, you know, uh, you really do get at the heart of the human condition, but it feels like we just had <clears throat> a blast and, and you just, you know, flew through a book in, in a day. Um, so can just talk to us for a minute about your reading, about your writing style. And, and <clears throat> was that a conscious decision to write in this, in this style and, and maybe who some of your influences were? Yeah, you know, uh, I I really appreciate that, by the way, because that definitely was what I was going for with with this book. Um, and and I, I mean, it's something I've been going for in a sense all my career. Like if you go back to Bad Haircut, which was quite a long time ago, you know, that is also written in, you know, I think pretty plain style. And I was very much under the influence of like Hemingway and Raymond Carver at that time. And I feel like, you know, loosened up my style a little bit over the years. Like, um, you know, I, I, I think there's a definite difference between a book like Little Children and Bad Haircut. You can see like a, a certain kind of growth stylistically. Mm -hmm. um, Tracy Flickcamp, when like election is written mostly in first person, though there are some third person chapters. I think one of the real things that's changed is I become a big listener of audiobooks. And I really love the idea of that it's brought back a kind of oral tradition. And I've become really conscious of like, what would this sound like read out loud, you know? And I do end up reading aloud to myself a lot when I'm writing. And I'd like this feeling of like not hitting any bumps, you know, of like, can I write it so that there won't be any bumps and that you as a reader will just be, you know, borne along the surface of the story because I think it creates this opportunity if you're just moving along with the story and it feels like it's happening in front of you, you're not getting out in front of the story, really. And so it just creates these opportunities for surprise, I think. And I value surprise, um, not necessarily in the big O. Henry twist way, but just like psychological surprise, characters surprising themselves with what they're thinking, what they're doing. Um, they're planning one thing, but another thing happens. They are trying to convince themselves of one thing and end up convincing themselves of the exact opposite. You know, I just feel like if I can get the narrative moving at a certain kind of velocity, then, you know, the reader can't get ahead of it. And I can surprise the reader. Love that. I mean, it reads like oral history, you know, so short and sweet, the chapters and every one of them alternates to a different voice. And you brought up the audiobook. I read it, so I haven't listened to the audiobook, but how is that done in the audiobook? They use different readers for different actors. So like Lucy Liu is Tracy Flick. <laughs> oh, really? Which is, which is great, yeah. She's a great That's narrator. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I recommend people check it out if they are, you know, audiobook yeah, I listeners. Think it's super fun audio, having read it for sure. So Tom, tell us what readers can expect next from you. And then if you don't mind, where can everybody find you and connect with you online? Oh, yeah. So my website is called tomparada.net. So you can go there or you can go. I have an author page on Facebook. So either of those places. I am at the early stages of a new novel. And, and all I can say is that, like the stories in Bad Haircut, it's set in New Jersey in the 1970s. And it has a kind of a coming of age. But unlike Bad Haircut, which was narrated by 
you know, a guy who seemed like maybe college age, who was looking back on his teenage years. This is narrated with the distance of a person, you know, thinking about something that happened 50 years ago and kind of pondering the slipperiness of memory. And, and again, the I think I'm maybe just have arrived at an age where I'm, you know, the past just feels like another world. And I'm just trying to kind of talk about how that world exists in a person's memory. I'm ready. <laughs> well, you'll have to wait a little while because <laughs> I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and we'll see what that kind of morphs into. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Giving... It'll be a science fiction book set in the present. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Tom, this has been such a highlight for us to have you here. I now really now know why I tell people that I read a little bit of this book and then I have to think about it for five hours because it's so deep and it's got so much to say. And I think people really need to know that. And when they dive in, they'll understand. And thanks for taking such a deep dive into the themes and the thoughts behind the book. And we can't wait for your next book. So huge gratitude for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. And thank you to our listeners for your ongoing support of this podcast and of the entire Friends in Fiction family. Don't forget, you can purchase Tom's book at a discount on our bookshop.org Friends in Fiction page. We appreciate you all. Please share with a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.